Well, good morning, church. Thanks so much for gathering here this morning. Thank you for bringing the church into uh, this sanctuary. It's good to be able to gather with the people of God. For those that are gathered for Crosspoint at home, thanks for bringing the church into uh, your dining room or living room or patio, wherever you happen to be watching from. Um, if you're somebody that's new to Crosspoint and we've never been introduced, my name's Jamie. Uh, it's a great privilege of mine to be one of the pastors here at Crosspoint. And it is a immense joy that I get to open up God's word with you this morning as we get into week two of uh, this series that we've entitled Bright Hope for Tomorrow, our Advent series coming from this beautiful line and the beautiful hymn that you just heard a portion of, uh, Great is Thy Faithfulness. And so we'll get into that in just a moment. But one of the things that I uh, want to do for just a couple of minutes um, is just give a, a Crosspoint family update and a couple of things that are happening here in the, the month of December. Uh, Make sure you guys, if you're part of the, this church family, some of this will be stuff that you've heard before, but we we'll also realize that, hey, people are always new to things. Sometimes emails go to junk mail folders. Uh, maybe you have my emails go directly there. I'm not sure, but... Um Either way, I um, wanted to take a moment to give uh, a quick uh, family update on a couple of things. And if there's things you have questions on, please seek out any one of the, the leaders. We'd be happy to uh, answer any questions uh, that you might have. But uh, even to hear that song a moment ago that reminds us it's from that hymn, like, great is thy faithfulness. Jesus has been immensely faithful uh, to Crosspoint. And then uh, part of his faithfulness um, is that about five and a half years ago, uh, when we had a need uh, for uh, an associate pastor uh, role, that God faithfully filled that by bringing Eric Rome uh, to us some five and a half years ago and his wife, Becca. Um, and at the time, it was just the two of them that rolled up. Um, and then they've had a couple of kids. They've added to the, the Rome family um, over the last uh, couple of years as well. Um, and so we're super thankful for them. Many of you that that are part of Crosspoint have gotten some communication uh, out over the last week or so. But Eric has accepted um, a call to be uh, an assistant pastor at another local church here in the area called Lake Baldwin Church, which is another great gospel-believing, gospel-proclaiming. Eric's not leaving to go be part of some cult somewhere, right? Like um, he is going to go serve at a, a church that we have so much in common with. Um, and so that'll be happening. Uh, he'll start that new role um, in January. But So I wanted to make you aware of that, that that's happening. Be praying for the Rome family. Be praying for us as we seek to you know, make plans, both in the interim and the, in the long term. Uh, but December 18th, um, we will have uh, some time during the service as well to honor and to thank Eric and, and Becca, as well as uh, pray for them to commission uh, them. They'll be here still like on Christmas Eve, um, but that service obviously a little different than our, our normal Sunday morning. And so we wanted to make sure we didn't miss out on an opportunity uh, there. So we'll be doing that on December uh, the 18th. Um, and so Again, please be praying uh, for them. We love these guys. Uh, thank you guys for your part of God's faithfulness really has been in bringing you all here. Um, and so sad to see them go. I'll get into stuff on the 18th. I guess I'm starting that now. Anyway, but uh, we'll go. I'll give a couple weeks for that. Um, but if you got any questions on any of those things, you can ask me. You can ask Eric. You can talk to anybody. Um, we want to. It's been an ongoing just conversation and process, and so we're we're seeing how God is uh, providing this. All right. So that's one thing. Other things, just in December, um, our church budget wraps up at the end of December. And so I wanted to give you a quick update uh, as well on just, hey, where things are. Uh, if you've been part of Crosspoint for the last year plus, then you would know if you were here this time last year, we went into December last year with a lot, probably the most financial uncertainty we probably had ever felt as a church. Um, 
And it was something that we brought before you guys and just said, hey, like we're doing all we can to reduce our operating budget, which was about $440,000 at the time. We're like, hey, we'll reduce it down. We got it down to $400,000, but asked you guys to say, hey, would you be intentional in what you can give in, in 2022 and um, to help us you know, like, see, hey, are we going to have to make any more cuts or things that didn't affect at the time any personnel, anything like that? Um, and you guys responded so faithfully and generously. And we have seen that. I would want you to know we have seen our most consistent year ever um, in the just pretty much consistent month to month. I mean, there's some peaks and valleys a little bit, but we used to be sort of this, it would be like, we would be way down and then it would go up and it would kind of riding that wave. And just seeing you guys faithfully. So when we talk of financial generosity, that it's sacrificial and it's consistent and it's cheerful, like you guys have done that. And so just at the, wanted to give you a couple of quick numbers. Our, you know, our budget is 400,000. We're pacing wise for spending. Like we seem to be like right on track with that, that stuff. I mean, obviously some final things to, to figure out, but um, 2022 giving so far, if you see this, um, has been just over 379,000. That is as of the close of, you know, the end of November. So as we go into December, um, we have about $21,000 to meet budget. Um, and so by God's grace, I feel very um, confident in, in that. Like that has been something that we've seen month to month just continue to, to come in. And so I say that for two things. One, thank you and praise God. All right. Uh, it's very encouraging to just see provision. Also, as we shared last year, our hope at some point would be to be able to take some things that we cut out of the budget to be able to put back in. And so one of the things we just would encourage you to be doing is we want to take as, have as accurate a picture as possible. So as we finalize our budget for 2023, we want to know, you know, we're trying to discern like, hey, what has come in in the whole year so we could maybe build a budget that is similar amount to what came in in 2022. So to that end, all right, if you're considering like, hey, we're giving in December, or we have some year-end giving, um, the sooner that even that is, is figured out would help us in planning our final budget for 2023 so that we kind of know, okay, this is where things are at, and can we begin to put some of the things back into the budget, or do we need to hold at where we've been? So we're praying through that. We just appreciate prayer in that. If you've got any questions, please let us know, all right? So, all right. We're going to shift. We're going to talk about the Bible now. All right. So here we go. That's always a, always a good thing. But bright hope for tomorrow. As I said, that is a particular line out of the hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. And we are looking at that theme about hope in general. And it's not a, oh, I hope that this thing will happen. Or I hope things worked out. But it's this guarantee we have in the scriptures about how God is at work and how he has invited us into the renewal of all things. And so in this Advent season, and Pastor Eric did a great job of this last week of reminding us that what historically Advent has been, it's not so much a celebration of the first Advent, although we love the first Advent, all right? Praise God for the incarnation, the baby Jesus. I mean, we love that. We celebrate that. We're singing songs about that. You got your Christmas music going. Great. It's awesome. And yet, down through church history, there's also been this focus on the second advent, 
that there's gonna be a second return. And this time, Jesus isn't coming back as a baby again and swaddling claws and all that. He's like, no, been there, done that, all right? Lived the sinless life, died the death you all deserve, rose again, conquered Satan's sin and death, and the next time he comes back is at this, as a triumphant king to bring renewal and restoration to everything. And so down through the ages, Advent has been this reminder that we live in this in-between, between the first advent and the second advent. And so we celebrate the birth of Jesus and we long for the return of Jesus. And so we wanna focus in on some things that maybe a way to think about it is, how do we live this day with the pain, the heartache, and some of the anxiety and the stress and the things that we all just feel, right? How do we live this day in light of that day? Because there is a bright hope for tomorrow, not in some sort of wishful thinking, but in a, no, there is a day, the day of the Lord that is promised when Jesus splits the sky and he returns and he wipes away every tear and we are reunited with him and we get to live fully in his presence and there's no more sin that's messing everything up. And so if we understand that day, what is gonna happen in the second advent, it will inform our hope here and now. So how do we live this day in light of that day? And so that's what this series is about, what we want to focus on. And each week now we'll be looking at an area where I think we, at least I know I feel, and I'm hoping these resonate with you as well, where sometimes we can lose hope, all right? And maybe not lose hope altogether, but we can find ourselves maybe a little jaded, a little disillusioned, a little discouraged about things. And so I've been trying to think through some different thing, different topics. What are some of the places where we can feel less than hopeful at, at times. And one of those areas is the church. And so I want to talk about that this morning, that God invites us into a bright hope for the church, for his church. Now, I don't know how much time you spend thinking about uh, the church. Um, uh, you know, I imagine you spend enough time thinking about it to like be here this morning, all right? So uh, it's obviously on your mind and on your heart, and it's something that you are part of and aware of, and, or maybe you're exploring the church again. Maybe it's something that you're like, hey, I was part of it at one time, and then I kind of just, maybe there was painful moments. Maybe there was, I don't know, it just kind of drifted apart. I don't know your, the particulars of your story, but I want us to consider it this morning. Like, how do you think about the church? How do you think the church is doing? And yes, you can answer that, that question in regards to Crosspoint specifically, but I don't just have Crosspoint in mind, all right? And if you're like, oh, is he asking for like, you know, the comment box? Not necessarily. I mean, sure, you can bring that, I guess, but um, more this, when you think about this thing, this, the people of God, the, the church, yes, a local expression, but even just what's the church? What's the climate of the church, the culture of the church? How, how is, the, is the church healthy in Western culture today, in America, in, in Central Florida? Like, what are some of the things that come to mind? And I think if we're honest, all right, and I obviously spend a fair bit of time thinking about the church and studying the church and working in the church, and I've been doing this ever since I graduated from college some 25 years ago, just being in and around the church, I think there's so much to celebrate, so much to be encouraged in, and yet also recognizing, man, it's difficult at times. Like we hear stories of church scandal and abuse and cover up, 
And maybe those things you're just aware of at an abstract level. Or maybe those are, oh man, those are not abstract things. Like that's part of my story. And it just, even saying that just is a rush of like emotion. You're maybe not even sure how to process. And it causes a viewpoint of the church. And I think even rightly so at times to be like, is there hope for the church? There's just a brokenness. Maybe it's like, okay, is there, you know, why is there yet another sort of like celebrity pastor that's gone and disqualified themselves? Like, what is that about? And why is it that the church maybe seems to show up in the news for all the wrong reasons at times? Or the division that has been, you know, that's come up so much over the last couple of years? And people splitting and leaving and all like, oh man, like what's going on there? Or if we just think it at a very practical level, as because sometimes it's easier to think in the abstract and all these things out there. Oh, well, let's bring it home, right? Like what, what, what about for you? Is your, do you have a passion for the local church? Is your passion waning? Or maybe you're confused about it. Have you been burnt by the church? Are there things where you're just like, man, I thought it was gonna work out this way, and then it didn't. Like, we, we have those things, all right? And if you're here this morning, you're like, yes, but I found Crosspoint where all will be well forever. No, right? You want to know why? Because other than Jesus, right, like, nobody's perfect. When we get together, the church is the ecclesia, the people that, like, hold out ones, the gathering of God's people. Well, God's people, in between the two advents, right, as we wait for Jesus to come back, We've still got a sin problem. So I'm still sinful and broken. You're sinful and broken, all right? And then we don't always understand each other well. We sin against one another. We're not as quick to forgive one another. We don't always work out repentance in the most helpful ways. Like all of that can be true and it can make it very difficult to live as the church. And so increasingly there's this movement. I sat in a lecture a couple weeks ago, which was fascinating. A couple friends of mine, a couple local church pastors have a book coming out uh, next year. And they were talking about the great de-churching in America and the tens of millions of people that have basically said, hey, I'm still in with Jesus, but I want very little, if anything, to do with this church. And that is increasingly a reality that we face. And so can we have hope for the church or is the hope to be like, all right, yeah, I'll worship Jesus, but I'm kind of done with being around the people of God. It's too painful. It's too hard. It's too difficult. And so in this kind of massive exodus, who people who haven't necessarily left Jesus, but have walked away from his church, what does it look like to have hope for the church? And what, friends? is your calling and my calling in that. And it's messy. St. Augustine, this quote is attributed to St. Augustine. I, you look it up and you'll find people say, I don't, no one can ever find if he really said it, but historically it's been attributed to him. And it gets at this complexity, all right? And in a way that maybe Augustine can get away with saying, so I'll just read it and you can take issue with Augustine, all right, not me. Um, he said this, the church is a whore, but she's also my mother. And what is he getting at there, right? He's like, man, um, I mean, a lot of things to work, work out that psychologically. But also, he's recognizing there is a brokenness, man. There's a waywardness about the church. And yet, there's this 
dignity and there's this beauty and there's something holy and something to be revered about the church. And we live in this tension. And so here's what I want to do. I want to go to, I think, one of the greatest passages in the scriptures. It's the, the first place to, to, that the word church is even used in the gospels. And it's Matthew 16, verses 13 to 19. And so if you've got a Bible, please turn there. All right. You can also go to thisiscp.church, and you'll see a little icon in the lower right corner on our webpage that uh, you can click that says Sermon Notes. Also, if you haven't noticed, um, on the pews, uh, there's a QR code. You can scan that, and it'll literally pop up that, uh, take you to exactly where you need, and you'll find the, the Sermon Notes there. But I want to go ahead and read Matthew's account where Jesus asks his disciples about his identity, who he is, and then begins to make some declarations, some promises about the church. And as I told some of you a few weeks ago, my eyesight is going. So those of you in the glasses club, please welcome me with open arms. So here we go. All right. Matthew 16, 13 to 19. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, you're the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So here's what I want to do. Let's talk for a moment about these opening verses if we're going to talk about the church and a bright hope for the church and what we're called to as the church, it all starts with this confession that's made about the person and the work and the identity of Jesus. There's no church if we don't get this right. It's just a gathering of people then that's just gathering in a room and singing some songs. But if we don't have the identity of Jesus right, it is all for nothing, friends. Like we're fools. What's the purpose of the whole thing? There's better things you could be doing with your time if we, unless we see and get and understand, oh, what is happening here in these opening verses about this confession that's being made. And so as we look back over these particular verses, Jesus asks his disciples. So he's got the 12. He's traveled with them. They're some 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. They're in this city, in this area called Caesarea Philippi. We'll come back to that in a moment. And then Jesus says this, who do people, like what's the word on the street? Who do people say the Son of Man is? Son of Man would be like Jesus' common way of referring to himself. And it doesn't take long for the disciples to have a response. They don't actually just stare at him awkwardly and Jesus doesn't have to say, don't make me call on you, right? Like, I mean, they have a response. There's things that people have been wondering about. And so there's talk, there's word, there's happening. You know, people are talking about this. And so it tells us, as we look at this, as Jesus says it, who do, the, who do they say? And he says, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, 
others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So clearly to the people, whoever's had an interaction with Jesus, they know there's a significance to him. Because everybody they just listed, right? These are prophets. John the Baptist was very revered. Elijah certainly was. This Old Testament prophet Jeremiah was. Even those that wouldn't maybe label him a particular identity, a particular prophet, they're like, oh, maybe he's just one of the prophets. I mean, so there's a weightiness. A prophet would be a spokesperson, like a messenger of God. They're like, okay, yeah, there's something significant. Like Jesus isn't just, just this average guy that just kind of blends into the crowd. They're like, we get it. Like there's something weighty that's happening here. And yet... What it does showcase is something very similar, I think, in our day and age. Just everybody's got a take on Jesus, right? Everybody has particular opinions. You'll hear lots of things. Like even people who do not follow Jesus, submit to Jesus, would not call themselves a Christian. You would be hard pressed though to find somebody that says either that he didn't exist or um, you know that he he did a lot of things wrong in the world and he caused a lot of division. Right? People would say no, like he's a good moral teacher. Like that's generally the consensus. But what I think is so important here, if we're going to be the church and should there, if there's going to be a hope for the church, we have to get it right about who Jesus is. Now, I've read this quote I'm about to read to you over the years in various, you know, various sermon series because I think it so poignantly gets at the cultural temptation to define Jesus any way that you want. And friends, if you want to figure out a way to destroy a church, start defining Jesus any way that you want, make him into your image, and then ask yourself, like, why is the power left the church? Because you're no longer a church. You're just gathering to worship something that you've created in your own image. We don't get to do that. C.S. Lewis says it this way in Mere Christianity. We do not get to define Jesus according to our likes and dislikes or what we think or don't think. He defines reality for us. And so hear these words. Here's what Lewis says. He says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing, Lewis says, we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who, who says he is a poached egg or else... He would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. So, I mean, do you see here what Lewis is doing? Like he's laying it out so powerfully. You don't get to pick. And if you like Jesus and you're like, hey, he's a great teacher, have you paid attention to his teachings? Because if he's not the son of God, if he's not divine and he's saying these things, you have to realize he can't stay in the category of like, oh, isn't that neat? These cute, pithy little teachings or whatever. No, no. He's a lunatic or it's the devil himself. And so here's then what Lewis says as he continues. He says, so either this man was and is the son of God or else is a madman or something worse. So friends, you can shut him up for a fool you can spit at him and you can kill him as a demon or you can 
fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But please let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. And so Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Not because it's simply important for other people to get it right, but in the follow-up question, we get the heart of Jesus because he says this. Okay, I heard your responses. People got some opinions. People got some takes on who I am. How about you? Who do you say that I am? I mean, think about that for a moment. This young group, these young men that he's gathered, maybe some still in their late teenage years, early 20s likely. This group of people that have all been about various trades and businesses and, you know, out fishing with their dad, that he's called them, he's gathered them, and he's looking them in the eye. He's like, okay, that's everybody else's opinion. Great. But you've been traveling with me. I mean, what's happening here, Matthew, the way that this has been laid out under the inspiration of the Spirit? Like, this is kind of this crescendo moment that's happening. It's all building to this, and then from there, it's going to be this journey to the cross. And so it's, this is this hinge, pivotal moment. And hear these words of Jesus, not just, hey, Peter, who do you say, who do you think I am? Or John, though he would have said those things. He's also asking you here this morning, because Jesus knew you would be here this morning, or you'd be online listening to this message. And he knew we would be in this text, and for this question, for you to wrestle with, and for me to wrestle with, who do you say that I am? Have you kept me in the category of just a great moral teacher or somebody to give a little bit of time to on a Sunday? Or have you submitted your entire life and surrendered to me as the Lord of Lords, as the King of Kings, as Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah? That's the question. And this then is what Peter does. Peter steps up and gives a response in verse 16. Somehow Peter's become the, you know, seems to be the official spokesperson for the disciples. He's always the first to speak. I don't, I don't get the sense that they took a vote and everyone's like, yeah, Peter's the guy. I think Peter just was like, I'm gonna do it. You're not gonna stop me. Try, right? So Peter just steps up to the plate, does this, all right? And here's his response to this question. Simon Peter replied. Just thinking the gravitas, the weightiness of this moment. Jesus looks at him, who do you say that I am? And Peter looks right back at him. And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And he's not saying, right, you're the Christ as if Christ is his last name. He's saying the language, the Christ, you're the anointed one. You're the Messiah. You're the one we've been waiting for. The first, he's recognizing that there has been this first advent. Because it's not just a prophet that's shown up, it's the Messiah. And this one who is here before him is the Son of God, that he's fully man and he's fully God. In some way, somehow, Peter is like, I've been caught up in this story. Me and these 11 other guys are getting to journey with the Son of God right here, right now. You're the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the Son of God. He makes this confession, 
and then look at Jesus's response to him in verse 17. Friends, Jesus looks at him and lets him know in no uncertain terms, that's the right answer. <laughs> doesn't leave him hanging. Doesn't he just walk away like, did I get it right? Did I, right? Like, he doesn't allow that to happen. He speaks truth right back to Peter and does it with such loving compassion and grace so that Peter might not get a big head about what he just said to Jesus because it says Jesus answered him. He said, blessed are you. I can see the blessing of God on your life, Peter. And he says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, which is a reference into Simon and the family he came from, referring to his father. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So I love this picture. Jesus says, man, yeah, you nailed it. You knocked it out of the park. That's the right answer, right? That's the big E on the eye chart. You didn't miss it. But just to be clear, even in how he addresses them, he reminds them, you've come from flesh and blood. You're Simon Barjona. And the reason you could answer this is not because you unlocked the keys to the universe. It's not because you gave it enough thought, that you did enough research, that you figured it out, that you're more spiritually gifted than everybody else. No, this was revealed to you, Jesus says, by my Father. And friends, let it just be an encouragement and a reminder. Might it lead us to worship this morning? Like, if you're here this morning, professing faith in Christ. That is a gift. It's not because you unlock the keys to the spiritual universe. It's because the Father has revealed this truth to you. It's the story we see in the scriptures over and over and over again. On our own, we don't figure these things out. Why? Well, quite simply, because the Bible tells us we're dead in our sins and our trespasses. Dead people are not good at figuring things out, right? No one talks to a corpse and says, tell me what to do, right? It's not how it works. And dead people don't pursue spiritual things. Dead people don't try and sort these things out. They're dead. That's us. And God breathes new life into us, makes us alive, gives us faith, showers us with this grace. That's what's happening here. And then it all brings it to a point of the confession. The ultimate confession has been made, but see God as the active agent in all of that. And so at that point, then we get to verses 18 to 19. And so friends, if that's the confession on which everything hinges, if we hold tight to that, if we realize that's where the power is, that's where the strength comes from, that's what this whole thing is built on, there is a confidence then that you and I can have about the church. Not because we're awesome and we're going to get it right. No, we're going to continue to mess things up. But because Jesus is awesome. And Jesus always gets it right. And so verse 18 says it this way. Jesus says, I tell you then, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So a couple things to unpack in that. And there's some things in here that the 
church has been trying to unpack for a couple thousand years that has led to lots of debates and church splits and, and things like that. And at a very basic level, there's a Catholic-Protestant split that in many ways can come back to a lot of what is in these verses. And so I'm going to untangle all that in the next 45 seconds. No, of course not. But I do want you to see this. Jesus says, I tell you, you're Peter. And on this rock, he says, I will build my church. And so the quick, as quick as I can be, sort of summary would be, well, Peter's name can literally be translated to mean rock. And so it seems like this play on words here, right? Like, hey, you're the rock. And on this rock, like on you, Peter, I'm going to build my church. And so you can see, like, over the years, if you've got a Catholic background, right, like, where this has resulted in, they would trace it back and say, this is kind of where the, 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 the papacy has started. Like Peter is the, the first pope, all right? And it would say, hey, Jesus promised he's going to build his church on Peter. Now, here's what I know to be true. God greatly used the apostle Peter. You cannot deny that. And so at a certain kind of human perspective, like level, it's like, yeah, is, is Jesus using Peter in some profound ways? Absolutely. You can't read the book of Acts without seeing the profound influence that Peter has. He preaches the first sermon in the life of the early church. 3,000 people get saved. Like, apparently, yeah, like God's working in and through him, all right? But I think we also have to realize Peter is not, Peter later on is going to deny Jesus. Just if we kept reading Matthew 16, even. Peter is going to hear Jesus say, I got to go die. And Peter's like, no way. And Peter has to be rebuked by Jesus. So imagine, imagine just the whirlwind of emotions here. Way to go. Blessed are you, Peter. And then a few verses later, Jesus is like, get behind me, Satan, right? So there's nothing perfect about Peter. God uses him because God uses broken people to bring about his purposes. So he uses them, but the church is not all built on Peter. Because on this rock, and the more Protestant understanding of, of this, and I know there's nuances to it, but it would be, it's about the confession. The rock is the confession, the identity of Jesus. The whole church is built upon Jesus. In fact, Peter himself, let me read to you a short passage out of 1 Peter, Peter's first, this letter in verses, uh, chapter 2, verses 4 to 6. It gets at this, and we see throughout the scriptures, Jesus is the one who's referred to as a rock, as a stone, as a cornerstone. And then we also are these living stones that get brought in. But it's all based on Jesus. He's the sustainer. He's the builder. He's the one that can make these promises and actually make them come true. So Peter writes these words. I don't think Peter saw himself as the one the whole church was built on. He sees it as Jesus. As you come to him, as you come to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves. So there's some similarities here now. We're not Jesus, but you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. He's talking about us as the church, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying, listen to this, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my church. It's about who he is, the confession, his, the identity of Jesus. 
He will do it. He's the active agent. He will build his church. And then he says this, though, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so as we see how this story plays out, friends, you and I can have hope for the church, hope for our involvement in the church, hope for us in this, because here's the reality. The reason Jesus can say the gates of hell will not prevail against it was referenced even indirectly here in 1 Peter, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You know the story of what Jesus had to endure, that he was rejected, he was betrayed, he was put on a cross. Jesus endured the fury of hell in your place and in my place. So the reason we now can have this confidence that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church is because Jesus already took on hell in one that Jesus had the power of hell unleashed on him. Hell is separation from God, and Jesus on the cross cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What you deserved and what I deserved, Jesus said took upon himself so that hell would not have the final say. Jesus goes into the tomb. It looks like hell was victorious. It looks like Satan, sin, and death were winning, and then new life bursts forth, and Jesus emerges as the conquering hero that we always hoped and now know him to be, right? And so that's what's taking place here. The reason that we can hinge everything on this confession and these promises is because Jesus has already dealt with hell. And then Jesus turns to Peter and he turns to the other disciples and he says this, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth, shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, that verse, that phrase, the ideas in there, there's, again, there's a lot to unpack there, more than we have time for. But I was reading different theologians and commentators this week on this. Just a helpful way, I think, to think about this is Jesus is looking at Peter, who he knows, give the dude about five minutes and I'm going to have to rebuke him because basically he's become a spokesperson for Satan, right? Like Jesus knows that Peter's going to deny him. He knows the other disciples are going to run away. He knows all that is going to take place. And not only does he know that about those disciples that are gathered with him, he knows about every disciple down through church history. And he knows about you. And he knows about me. And yet he says, here are the keys. Like our youngest turned 16 back in August. Um, and it was one of those beautiful, terrifying moments of being like, here you go, right? And the excitement she had about, whoa, like I, I get to go drive now. I have sort of this freedom. I have this, right? Like that is just a glimpse into like how amazing what is happening what is happening here in verse 19. Because Jesus is literally saying, I'm gonna build my church and I'm gonna do it through misfits and people that mess up and don't get it right and deny me. I'm gonna demonstrate my power. You wanna know how? I'm gonna choose the weakest and the lowliest and the foolish. Peter, here's the keys. I'm literally giving you the keys to the kingdom. And what it means is, Peter, when you go out and others share the gospel, and proclaim the gospel, right? You're gonna open up the doors of salvation for people. 
Not because Peter saves anybody or you do that or I do that, anything like that, but rather our call is to be disciples who make disciples. And so go and preach the gospel and share the gospel and give towards things that where the gospel goes forth, like be part of that movement. And he's saying, as you proclaim the gospel, people will respond in faith. Remember, it's the father that reveals it to them. The father is the one who does the, the work, but you get to be part of the unlocking of the kingdom of God for people. And there'll be others that reject it and they will lock themselves into separation from God. But the doors of hell, as loose as they are, locked from the inside. So there, some will reject it, but friends, some will be loose, some will be set free, some will find the shackles of, of sin and shame to be removed and they will dance and they will skip and they will rejoice because they have been set free. You get to be part of that. And what was said to Peter and to his disciples when Jesus then was getting ready to ascend back into heaven, he said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. He's commissioning all of us now down through the ages. We get to play, like we get to participate. If you're like, oh, not me. For crying out loud, he used Peter, right? Nothing against him. We'll meet in heaven one day. I don't think it'll be an awkward conversation. I'm just saying like the dude messed up big time and God used him because there's no perfect people in God's kingdom. No one has all the right answers or just the perfect apologetic or has a life that always showcases the grace and glory of God all the time. No, we all mess up. And Jesus is like, here are the keys. Have fun. Not in a flippant way, but it's because he's got this. He is going to build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It frees us up to be the church. And so here's with the last couple minutes, I'm gonna close with this. As I opened in this reading, there's a detail in verse 13. I want to close with this detail. Because I think if you're like me, in some ways, it is easy to look out and be like, man, it's hard to be the church right now. It's hard to be a Christian in this cultural moment. It's hard to speak the truth wondering like what the, what the repercussions are going to be. We just, we need to just be silent. What, what, what do we do? Like, how do we navigate the, this space? There's a complexity to it 100%. I wouldn't disagree with that at all. And yet, it's always been difficult to be the church. There has never been a culture that wasn't opposed and hostile to the advancement of God's kingdom. That there are spiritual powers of darkness at work that are in direct opposition to seeing the kingdom of God advance. I think the particulars can look different. But I want us to see this in closing as a way, hopefully that brings some hope and some encouragement. Verse 13, now when Jesus came into the District of Caesarea Philippi. It's a detail we might miss. We're like, okay, that's just a name of a place that maybe I couldn't spell on my own, okay? Um, and that may be true, but this detail is so important because Jesus said, on this rock, I'll build my church. And I 100% believe that the primary thing he's talking about is the confession about the identity of who he is. 
And yet geographically, if you were to travel 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, and that time and place, you would arrive in Caesarea Philippi. And you would look out and you would see a gigantic rock outcropping. And there, up on this hill, would have been this glorious city of Caesarea Philippi that had previously been called Peneus, after the Greek god Pan. And in Caesarea Philippi, it had been recently renamed in the time of Jesus in worship of Caesar and then Herod the great son Philip built this temple for Caesar worship, all right? This glorious structure that was there. And he's like, I'm gonna honor the Caesar. I'm gonna honor myself. Caesar and Philip, there we go, Caesarea Philippi. So that's how the name came about. And so there's worship of the emperor happening. There was a temple dedicated to the pagan god Baal that was there. And there was also a temple and ritual sacrifices and things to the Greek god Pan. Pan was the god of fertility. It was half man and half goat. And in this place, I tell you these details because I know you love history as much as I do. No, it's not that. But these details matter because Jesus took a young group of Hebrew boys, young men, who would have been told by their parents, don't you ever go to Caesarea Philippi. If I ever catch you there, you're grounded for life, right? Like it was that kind of place. And Jesus takes them on a field trip, not coincidentally, to have a conversation with his disciples about who he ultimately is. In a place where there's worship of the emperor, there's the syncretistic stuff that's happening, there's worship of Baal, and there's worship of the Greek god Pan. And the way that that would be through this cultic prostitution practices, all right? I'm not going to, like, I would say use your imagination, but what I'm going to tell you, but don't use your imagination because it's just sinful, all right? But in this, this sense, literally, all right, acts of bestiality and things taking place there in that to supposedly honor the pan, God, pan, this goat man. I mean, so it's just sick and it's depraved. And furthermore, all up on this big rock is where Caesarea Philippi is. And there was a gigantic opening that was a cave. And it's there that they believe the gods would pass in and out and that they would go in for the winter and that they had to be enticed to come out, the gods of fertility in the springtime so that the harvest and such could happen. And they literally believed that they were standing on the threshold of the gates, the gateway to hell. This is a picture of some of what's been excavated. You can see little altar things in the rocks. You can see the giant opening. You can see the gigantic rock. This is likely in view when Peter and Jesus are having this conversation. And so, friends, there's more I could say, and I'm way out of time, but hear, hear me on this. Jesus takes him there into a place that people literally believed was the threshold, the gates of hell. And he's like, guess what? I'm going to build my church here. My church will continue to advance. Gates don't advance. No, no. Gates get stormed. 
The church is not called to retreat from culture. The church is called to advance, to bring the renewing love and grace and mercy of King Jesus to bear on a culture that desperately needs it. And so we might feel like outcasts and misfits and like we don't have it together and we certainly don't, but Jesus does and he promised that he would build his church. And if he's doing it in places like Caesarea Philippi, he will do it here and now. He can do it in your neighborhood, in your, like where he's placed you to be the church. He can do it here in Central Florida. There is nothing and no one that is beyond the grace and mercy of Jesus. He's gonna build his church. And we, friends, we get to be part of that. If you're like, man, I don't know the purpose in my life. You get to play. Here are the keys. Let's go. Like that's what Jesus is saying. He will build his church. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for this really good news. Thank you, Jesus, that you faithfully have been building your church, that there's nothing that stands in the way of the forward movement, the ultimate renewal movement, Jesus, that you've begun. And we long for your second coming, the second out of it, where you set everything right. We pray in the meantime that you would use us as your people to be the church, that we would point people to the hope that we have found. Our confidence is not in us. It's not in this church or any local church. Our confidence is in Jesus. Jesus, would you embolden us through the power of your spirit to be the church in this time, in this place? You have chosen us for such a time as this, so we thank you. May we embrace the high calling that you've given to us as your bride. We long for you to come back and to set everything right. But in the meantime, help us to be about your work for your glory and for our joy and the joy of all people, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.